just how big is your God? How big is your God? Now, loved ones, this is a question of critical importance when we are suffering. How big is your God? For the simple reason that our troubles grow bigger when our God is small, and when our God is big, then our troubles shrink. So let me ask you again, how big is your God? That really is the question of this passage, and we are going to unpack this passage by first asking the question, who do you think he is? Who do you think he is? Now, I think it's helpful at this point to backtrack just a little bit. If you remember, Isaiah chapter 40 was a significant turning point in the book of Isaiah because in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, what we see repeatedly was how the people of Israel repeatedly and over and over turned to Assyria, turned to Egypt, and to other human resources in the face of their troubles. So what did they do when things got bad? Did they pray to God? No. Did they seek God's mercies? No. What did they do when things got tough? They sent help to Assyria. They sent for help to Assyria. They asked for help from Egypt. And they did everything that they could imagine except turn to God. And so the first 39 chapters, what we see is equal part idolatry and madness. It's idolatry because they rejected God as their only source of hope and help. And it is also madness because what human being what human resource can possibly live up to our expectations and meet our demands to be the perfect Savior? There's not one human being that can do that, and there's not any human resource that can meet our expectations and give us what we demand from them. And so in the first 39 chapters, we see this repeated idolatry and madness people of Israel turning to man and trusting in man's strength in, fa- in the face of difficulties. And then comes chapter 40. And this is precisely the place where we would expect God's wrath. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me uh, twice, shame on you. Um, And for 39 chapters, we saw that. Idolatry and madness. And that is exactly where we we expect God's wrath, except something totally unexpected happens. In chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Who could have imagined or guessed or predicted that that is how God would respond to sin and rebellion of his people? And so really, that is the, the amazing, significant turning point. And from chapter 40 on, the focus really has been on the, and very much on that heart of God from which come grace for sinners and compassion for the suffering people. And that precious truth once again takes the center stage in this passage. In verse 12, we hear the Lord saying, I I am he who comforts you. That doubling of I, I, I am he who comforts you, that doubling of I serves to both remind Israel and us that God and God alone should be our hope and help in our trouble. I, I am he who comforts you. But at the same time, the doubling of I, I, I am he who comforts you, shows us that God's most fundamental and basic essence is comforting people. That's who he is. That's what he does. He is a comforter, and comforting is what he does. And when God comforts, he makes us hope. Now, Zion, uh, once again, remember that Zion uh, is both the name of the city of David But because that's where the temple was built, that's where godly people always looked to when they thought about God. That name Zion not only is a name of the city of David, but it is also a name that represents all of God's chosen people. And the grieving, faithful people of Israel, you know, they were at a place in their lives and in their history where as far as they could see, They had no future. They had no hope. The nation has suffered the conquest of Babylon. Their people have been taken as captives. And the people who were taken as captives, they were forcibly removed from their homes. You know, we as Americans, we think nothing of moving across the country. You know, that's a very recent thing in human history. Most of history... People lived where their fathers lived, where their grandfathers lived. And your very identity was tied and rooted to where you were from. And to be forcibly removed from your home was a, was a, a trauma that they just weren't prepared to deal with. And it wasn't as if they were just forcibly removed. They saw their family and friends die. And to be brought into a foreign place where people speak a strange language knowing they look down on you as the conquered people. Knowing that there is no way that we can ever find our way back home. They were a people without hope and a future. As for the people who are left behind, the poorest, the ones that the Babylon Empire thought 
you know, we don't need to bother with these people. <laughs> they offer us nothing. You know, these are people who suffered trauma, tragedy. And they, as far as they could see, they had no future. They had no hope. But when God comforts them, that's what he gives them. So remember chapter 50, verse 4. The servant of the Lord receives from the Lord the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Now the weary, weary are those who are crushed under the weight of their burdens. The weary are those who have no strength left to take one more step. But when God comforts them, they are raised up with strength to press on toward glory. And that is who God is. And that is what God does. I, I am he who comforts you. God is our comforter, and he's the one who gives us hope. That's who he is. And secondly, knowing that, we need the grace of sizing things up correctly. We need the grace of sizing things up correctly. Let me explain. The Lord says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you? Now, what is that question? When the Lord says, I, I am he who comforts you, who are you that you are afraid? What he means is this. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you? You are the ones that I love and uphold. You are the ones that I've committed myself to bless. You are the ones that I carry in my heart. Who are you? You are the one that I have committed to comfort, to heal, to rescue. Who are you that you are afraid of man? who dies, or the son of man who is made like grass. You see, these people taken as captives, suffering the scorn and the abuse of foreigners, they lived in constant fear, and they were afraid of man. But notice that there are three strikes against man, both when we make man our hope and also when we are afraid of man. First man, man dies. He is mortal. Man does not last. Man does not endure. Second, man is son of man. And in this case, it's highlighting the human origin. Third, Man is like grass, being fragile and temporary. And so the Lord is asking his people, I, I am he who comforts you. You, you are the object of my love, affection, promise, faithfulness. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies or the son of man who is made like grass? Now consider God. We read here, he is your maker 
who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Now, loved ones, uh, let me say something, and I hope you hear me very carefully. One cannot be an orthodox Christian or have a good handle on life once he gives up the biblical faith in God the Creator. Once we give up on the Scripture's witness of God who is the Lord over the creation that He has made and sustains, then you are no longer an Orthodox Christian and you no longer have the ability to have a good grasp and a good handle on life. And that is the reason why the very first line of the Apostles' Creed, do you remember? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You see, because once we turn away from the Bible's witness of God's creative and sustaining power over the universe, then God is dwarfed in our minds just as our fear of man grows exponentially. That's what happens once we lose our grip on who God is, the maker and the sustainer of all things. When that goes, when God is dwarfed, when God shrinks, then man, our fear of man, troubles, they grow bigger. No wonder, no wonder the Lord makes this, this remark. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor, the Lord says. Indeed, where? Where is it? Now, we know, don't we, that life is hard in many ways. And God has his purpose. And because the afflictions that we live with, the afflictions that we experience, they are God's fire that purifies the heart. So God sends us afflictions out of his wisdom and purpose. And so there is no denying that there are many things in life that burden our hearts. There are many things in life that we, that we are afraid of. There are many things in life that we wish would never happen to us because, because they hurt. And you know what? That just makes you and that just makes me human. Nevertheless, when we fear man, and fearing man can take many shapes and forms. For example, when we fear man, we think too much of one, what man says. When we fear man, we are afraid of confrontation. We shy away. And when we fear man, we, we have a compulsive need to please people. And when we fear man, 
what has happened is that we have lost the ability to see things in their proper proportions and relations. And that is why we need the grace of sizing things up correctly. God, God is great and He is powerful. And before that God, our worst and most difficult trials shrink in size. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Or can I put it this way? Man may huff and puff threats to harm us. But what exactly is his huffing and puffing before the Lord who creates the storms that make the vast oceans surge and roar? And so, loved ones, for every look at your problems, take a good look at your great and powerful God. And then stand in awe of Him. Because when God is big, then troubles shrink. But when the the greatness and the bigness of God disappears, then the void and vacuum is filled by fear of man, fear of troubles, afflictions. How big is your God? And thirdly and finally, we see the God of new creation, the God of new creation. Just, how would you answer the question? How big is he? Who is he? And just who God really is and our ability to correctly size things up, they all coalesce in the servant of the Lord. Now, of course, this is what Paul uh, says in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If we really need to understand who God is, we do that in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we really want to learn how to size things up correctly, we do that in the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no spiritual blessing that we can have apart from Christ. And if there's anything good in life, God gives them to us through Jesus Christ. And that is why our understanding of who God really is and our ability to size up things correctly in their proper proportions and relations, these things all come to us in the servant of the Lord. Because the servant of the Lord Jesus, he is the one who shows us who God really is. And he's the one who shows us how to see things in their proper proportions. And so look at verse 16. It's interesting. Um, I know this is really difficult to see, if not impossible. Um, In verse 12, 
I, I am he who comforts you. In Hebrew, that pronoun has a feminine gender uh, because it's referring to Zion that is mentioned in verse 11. Now, Hebrew is one of those languages that, that have gender in their words, like Spanish, el hombre, la señora. So words have genders in some languages, and Hebrew does that. And Zion, in verse 11, it's a feminine noun. And referring to that, verse 12, I am he who comforts you, that's a feminine pronoun. But when we come to verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth. That word, your, is actually masculine and singular. Uh, it's really hard to see, if not impossible to see in the English translation. But the point is that God is changing the person to whom he is addressing. And the focus of God's address is now no longer Zion, but the servant of the Lord. And so in verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. And that is actually a counterpart to what we read in chapter 50, verse 5. There the servant of the Lord says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. So in chapter 50, verse 5, the servant of the Lord says, God has put words on my tongue. And chapter 51, verse 16, the Lord says to his servant, I have put my words in your mouth. You see how they are counterparts to one another? And the point being that God put his word in the servant's mouth and the servant becomes the maker and the Lord of new creation. And notice what verse 16 says. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. But you realize that that's already done. God has established the heavens, and he laid the foundations of the earth all the way back in Genesis 1. You know that, don't you? And so God is not referring here to that act of first creation, but to the act of new creation. Because that gracious ministry of the Lord Jesus, who, who sustains the weary and he who comforts the downcast. That gracious person and the gracious ministry begin the creation of new heavens and new earth. And so the Lord Jesus has become the maker and the Lord of new heavens and the new earth. And in this new creation, we do not tremble before man. And that is why Jesus says to Zion, you are my people. You are my people. You know that beautiful hymn by John Newton? Glorious, of th glorious things of thee are spoken. The last stanza goes like this. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. 
solid joys, and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. I wish I could write like that. And the question is this, isn't it? Why are we so afraid of man? So what if the world takes everything away? Do we gain less in Christ? Not at all. Let the world do its worst. Because we inherit in Jesus Christ new heavens and new earth. Because Jesus says to Zion, to all of God's chosen people, all who look to the Lord with faith, yes, in weakness, but with faith, all who wait on the Lord, yes, patiently, but with hope, he says to them, you are my people. You belong in new creation. You are mine. And if so, what if the world takes everything away? You and I, we inherit the new heaven and new earth. And if we are the people of Zion, why are we trying to please man? Jesus alone, Jesus alone should be our heart. And he alone should be our love. Amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we humbly come to you and we acknowledge that we are so forgetful. We forget so easily who you are, how great you are, how full of grace and mercy you are. And forgetting these precious truths, our troubles seem to grow and dominate our hearts and our minds. Oh, Father, we turn our eyes to you and we remember your great power and your love. And so we pray, oh, grant us your grace that we may find strength and peace in this life, that we may be set free from our fear of man but live with confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, in in whose glorious kingdom we have a rich inheritance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.